This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Dental Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by a brilliant CEO. We're joined today by Michael Schwartz of Specialty Dental Brands. He's going to tell us about himself, Specialty Dental. He's also tell us about uh, where he's most, what trends he's watching most closely, what advice he would give to other leaders, to, to, to leaders, emerging leaders, and, and a lot more. Michael, can you take a moment and tell us about yourself and about Specialty Dental? Thanks, and thanks for having me, Scott. So I entered the dental industry in 2008, uh, kind of a career change for me. I was in the uh, financial markets and had a friend that introduced me to a dentist who was trying to put together a back office so he could expand uh, into his second office and third office. And he, he had a vision of having a bunch of offices in, you know, one metro area. And Growing up, I'd only gone to, to small private practice dentists, so I wasn't really familiar with the group model. And I took a flyer. It was, it was 2008. The financial markets were looking a little shaky, and then they became very shaky. Uh, so I jumped in with both feet, and together with those two doctor owners, we, we built what we all now call DSO, built that up and uh, sold it to one of the larger general dentistry DSOs in the country today. Um, after that, I started my own specialty dental group called Spring and Sprout in 2013, focused exclusively on pediatric and orthodontics. And um, that one ended up being sold into a GP DSO to become a kind of a GP and, and some specialty. And so in 2018, I I met some people at a family office in Dallas, Texas, who were, they had started slowly in a pediatric office. And so I joined the company, especially dental brands in summer of 2018. And we had two offices. And as of two days ago, we just uh, partnered with four more, four more groups, which has taken us to 146 locations across 14 states. And in the next 90 days, we'll be north of 200 offices. And we're focused at specialty dental brands on pediatric dentistry, orthodontics, and oral surgery. And that's our exclusive focus, those three specialties. Phenomenal. I mean, that's, that's literally amazing, up to 200, um, 200 offices. When, when you, you, you look at that, um, what, what are the trends that you're watching in dentistry? I mean, people tell me about 200,000 dentists out there. It is still a small amount of the total market that's with DSOs, uh, but growing. What are the big trends that you're watching, Michael? Right. So I agree with that. We're still, I'm a big sports fan, so we're still in the early innings of consolidation in our cottage industry. Uh, numbers I see is about somewhere in the low 20%, 22, 23% of of dentists are part of DSOs. The vast majority of that is general dentistry DSOs, your Heartlands, Aspens, Pacific, people like that. On the specialty side, you know, there's only, if, if we look at our three specialties, you're probably talking 25,000 dentists in those three specialties. Um, the consolidation there is less than 10%, you know, five, seven, nine percent. And so, What's driving that consolidation, you know, the, the macro drivers that a lot of people talk about is the student loan debt. Um, there is a big gender 
transformation going on in the dental industry. Um, when I got in in 2008 and was talking to dentists that were looking to transition their practices, you know, these are baby boomer dentists. When they were in dental school, there was maybe one or two female um, students in their class with them. And today we're seeing on the, on the four-year dentistry school, um, there's programs that are high as 60%. A lot of programs are now 51, 52% female. Um, when you get into certain specialties, pediatric dentistry, maybe 80% these days. I was just at a conference. There were two residency programs at the conference in pediatric dentistry. There was, there was one man and 10 or 11 female and women. So I think you're seeing that, that dentistry is one of the few industries that provide that elusive work-life balance. And if you want to not have to choose between having a family and working and having a career, dentistry does allow, there's a lot of dentists that work two or three days a week that still make six figures and get that true balance. And you know, traditionally we haven't seen as many women who are looking to be private practice owners because they want that flexibility. And so, it's really shrunk the buyer pool out there for the traditional dentist to dentist transition. And so that consolidation is sped up. I also think COVID really, you know, in my years in the business, we talked to a lot of dentists in their prime who would say, you know, they understand they're going to make less, they're going to have less take home income every year when they partner with the DSO because they're now getting paid as a doctor versus the doctor share and the owner share. Um, so, so there's a lot of doctors in their prime that used to say, I'll wait five years, I'll make money for five more years, and then I'll sell to you. Or, you know, let's talk about this in four years. I think COVID really hit the dental industry hard where a lot of dentists weren't prepared. They didn't have a lot of cash on hand. The average dentist's office had 30 to 45 days of cash on hand. When that pandemic started driving and, and places were shut for two, three, four months, um, the consolidation picked up. You know, we're one of those stories, especially in the specialty area of dentistry. The tremendous growth we had from 20, 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic, we actually saw our patient volumes go up and then our partnerships went up tremendously of doctors that wanted to, you know, it finally hit, you know, there's too much administrative stuff. How do you do a PPP loan? How do you do an idle loan? How do I take care of these benefits? How do I comply with Colorado's emergency COVID sick pay leave act? Um, it, it just overwhelmed a lot of dentists. And I think that event has propelled a lot of dentists to, to relook at their plans and say, maybe it is good to partner with a group that has the expertise in legal and marketing and finance and, and all the things that they weren't trained to do in school. And, and it makes a ton of sense. All of a sudden people felt vulnerable in a way then vulnerable in a long time, like many, you know, mid-sized small physician practice, everything gets distributed every year, every year, every month, very little left in reserves. And, and once right. you have sort of a crisis, where you're not seeing patients, you're not generating cash flow. All of a sudden, you really rely on your balance sheet outside your office to make sure you're okay in, in total. So it's a very scary right. period for any proceduralist that really lives on their on their work, on their day to day work. And, and Mike, talk about you. You've had this great leadership career. You're also, you know, a brilliant business education and thinker. 
what advice do you give to leaders, to emerging leaders? I mean, you've got now a ton of people that work with special general brands. What do you tell the next level of leaders trying to become great leaders, people trying to become great leaders? What advice do you give to them? Yeah, I think it's really, you know, you, you have to be thoughtful. I think the days of of the iron fist top-down leadership is it's gone. I, I've been practicing a, a leadership philosophy going back to 2008 under the guise of open book management. Um, Jack Stack wrote a great book way back called The Great Game of Business. And open book leadership and open book management is kind of a bottoms-up mentality. The people that are closest to your customers or if you're a manufacturing facility, closest to the product and the assembly, they have a lot of knowledge. And you have to find a way to engage with that knowledge group. So that, that gets into sharing key performance metrics. I think having empathy, um, I think we saw that, especially during the last two years. Um, there's a lot of people that have a lot of things going on outside of work. And I think the, the really good leaders are able to have empathy, but still you have to explain your strategy and vision. And you and, and one thing I was talking about yesterday with my leadership team, I, I go back to Apollo 13 movie when you know the whole mission was going wrong and all of a sudden they realized that the the carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide filters were only designed for two people and they had three people up there. And they dumped that box on the table and they said, work the problem. And I really think in this day and age, leaders trying to solve all the problems on their own in their office with the door closed is not the way of, of the future. It's bring in your team, tell the team, here's a problem we're trying to solve, get that collective knowledge from, from your frontline person all the way to you know your VP or whoever that is. And it's really, you, you need to be transparent you need to clearly lay out the vision and the direction you're going with the company. Um, we happen to use right now, we use the concept of OKRs. Um, you know, Intel was the big, um, Andy Grove back in the day of using OKRs and several companies, Google, everybody did that. But everybody in our company can see the four main strategic objectives of the company. And then there's results and other objectives underneath there. So you you avoid you know the biggest challenge i think is when you have people in a big growing company that they don't know how daily they're contributing to the success of the company and i think by using an okr and an open book management philosophy you're being transparent you're letting that person know if they're in the revenue cycle and they're dealing with an insurance company trying to adjudicate claims that's very important to the success of the business. Um, and as long as you can talk to your, your leaders underneath and kind of keep cascading that message down, you get a very engaged team across the organization and people really feel that purpose. And I think as the generational changes are happening in the workforce, we read articles all the time, the younger generations wanna make sure there's a purpose alignment. It's not about who's going to pay me the most money. You know, we talk about this all the time. People don't leave jobs 
because even in a dental office, your assistant's making $15 an hour and you hear they jump shit because the person across the street paid them $16 an hour. Nobody's leaving for that dollar. It's not the reason. They're leaving because of the work environment. They don't like that. So, so it's really that empowerment, that empathy, and I think vision, having the vision and being able to explain that to the team is key. What does OKR stand for? I'm not sure I heard what OKR yeah. stands for. So OKRs are objectives and key results. So gotcha. instead of, and I, and I think where people struggle is sometimes they set a goal, hey, I want to grow by 10%. Well, that's a great goal or an objective, grow by 10%. But how are you going to do that? If you're in a pediatric dental office, maybe that, that, that next level down, that key result is increase my daily patients from 31 patients a day to 33 patients a day. Or it's increase my referrals, find one new referral source. Um, so you start, instead of just saying a goal of 10%, you're actually putting steps underneath it to accomplish that are tangible results that will drive you to that goal and and the objectives can be aspirational they can be kind of the old stretch goals they can be very committed we're going to reduce our supply costs by a half a percent that's a very tangible thing to do so uh, and there's a lot of, there's a website called measure what matters and uh, 100 percent if you that was the book by john door john door yep who is a john door the uh fascinating and 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 one of the Koch brothers had fascinating book on measure what matters as well but john door was actual measure what matters the in brilliant brilliant investor venture capital investor another question you had mentioned andy grove and we had we had talked about andy grove and something earlier this morning and andy grove okay. was also famous for only the paranoid survive and one of his famous comments about trying to build intel to this magnificent organization would andy grove as he sees nvidia exceed intel and market cap but not in revenues and profits. Would Andy Grove hate the fact that in the U.S., NVIDIA has taken the lead in so many perspectives from Intel? How would Andy Grove respond to that kind of competitive threat? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you got to lay out is, is where are your competitive advantage? You know, I think if you look at what Intel's doing today, and um, I forgot Tim or whoever the new CEO is, he was on CNBC this morning, and he's talking about, you know, opening that plant in, in Ohio, you know, near Ohio State. So you could source the next generation of engineers, have strategic supply chains. I think, I think sometimes people get caught up in these market caps and, you know, in dentistry is the same thing. I mean, there's the, the valuations in dentistry are very high. I mean, we know that. But at the end of the day, you have to have a strong foundation in your company that you can continue because a lot of this growth by a lot of these companies is through acquisitions. I think you, you really need to focus on a lot of companies have two businesses. They have their legacy day-to-day operations, and then they have their acquisition M&A arm. And you, you, can't, you can't just focus on one side or the other. You have to be able to run a concert. 100%. You can't be acquisition-centric and have organic go in the wrong direction. That just means you're buying right. things and they're bleeding and they're going in the wrong direction. I, I think your point on Intel though, I, I couldn't agree with you more about something you said there about the new CEO and the leadership today. W- one of the things that's happened with Intel, and I'll just segue for one moment, Intel right. versus NVIDIA. NVIDIA has sort of woken up Intel again. It, it, and your point right. is, you know, NVIDIA is trading at a 70 price earnings, Intel is trading at a 10 price earnings. 
Like if I had to buy into one of them today, it's probably Intel, quite frankly, because you could right. see it's almost like a sleeping bear that they're, they're again, after it, it seems like they've become commoditized. They're trying to get better. They're trying to build again. I could not agree with you more on your perspective on it, but it's fascinating to watch what's happened in the reference to Andy Grove made me think about it because what a famous entrepreneur, right. inventor, et cetera, et cetera. Fascinating. One last question for you today, Michael, and then we'll get sure. you back on again shortly. Okay. Is Perfect. The, the question of you're, a, you're an alum of the University of Michigan, you're in Chicago, and, and I've had a couple kids that go to University of Michigan. And even though a couple kids have gone there, I can't help but hate University of Michigan from growing up as an anti-avid <laughs> University of Michigan person. I, I still can't share for the sports, even though the daughters have had magnificent experiences there. <laughs> are you a dyed-in-the-wool Wolverine fan, or are you a University of Chicago fan? Where are your right. sports loyalties? And I, and I will love you either way. Okay, so I'll, I'll clarify something. I live in Ann Arbor. I did not go to Michigan. So I did undergrad at University of Kansas. I grew up in Kansas. So I am a diehard Jayhawk. Um, I think if you live in Ann Arbor and you didn't go to Michigan State or a Big Ten school, you default because it's, it's similar to Green Bay. Like on a football Saturday, like that's the best day to go to Costco. Like you go to Costco because everybody's at the game. The whole city can fit in the stadium. Um, so, you know, I tend to cheer for Michigan sometimes when uh, if Kansas isn't around, which is usually most of the football season. But I'm, I'm pretty happy right now in the tournament. Kansas looks good. I'm shocked that Michigan is still in. I didn't even think they were going to make the tournament. So I wasn't super thrilled because I had Tennessee in my bracket. So uh, Chicago is business school, you know. <laughs> Chicago yeah, did have the first, Heisman, the first Heisman Trophy winner, fun fact, was from the University of Chicago. Jay Berlinger. So, the, um, so yep. here is that Jay Berlinger, is that it? The, um, it's sports trivia day for now. The next question is the next question is, and I love Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is just an absolutely spectacular city, a magnificent city. It really is one of the great cities in America for people that haven't spent time there. It's just a wonderful, wonderful city. Juwan Howard versus Bill Self. And again, I'm a okay. University of Illinois graduate from undergrad, then Harvard at law school, but University of Illinois graduate, which means you hate Bill Self with a passion, but Juwan Howard is Bill <laughs> Self. Who's, who's your. Who, who's your Bill guy? Self. Bill Self. Self, you know, there was, there was a couple tough years when he was sticking with the high-low offense and everybody was shooting threes and we were losing to mid-majors. Um, but he came around and, you know, he's a Hall of Famer now. So, Bill Self. And, you know, your Illini, you know, they didn't look good in the tournament, but they had a better year. So, I think they've awoken from the 20-year absence of being a good team. So, you've got some hopes there. We're hoping. We're hoping. No, we think Bill Self's a magnificent coach. He just he just left the University of Illinois for a couple of years. I know. Uh, and anyways, right. Michael, great to visit with you. We'll go back to dental surgery. Great talking talk to you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Take care.